Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Monday, everybody. How y'all doing? How's that weekend? I'm sure some people, you know, the weekend was full of a little bit of anxiety, right? Understandably. We have a uh, big election coming up tomorrow. So um, I can imagine for some people it was uh, rooted in a lot of discussions about what could be and what those outcomes might mean for you and, you know, preparation for that. Others, they, you know, lovingly set a self-care boundary and said, I'm, I'm taking a break. You know, I voted. I, I know where my allegiance lies and I don't need to necessarily keep up with everything that's going on between now and then, which is what I did. I took the entire weekend off, you know, no more information needed by me. My mental health matters more, taking a break, rooting it completely in just fun and relaxation, which is what I did. Of course, as always, I had a lot of work to do, but I'm working on my third book as well, which is kind of my number one priority right now. And, um, also just getting ready and preparing for an unknown outcome with the election. Gosh, I really didn't think that Trump was going to win last year or last year. (laughs) last election. Oh man, it definitely does not feel like it was just last year. So that was a very bizarre <laughs> misspoke, misspoken uh, concept right there. My God. But um, yeah, nonetheless, nonetheless, we're here for you. Channel Q is going to be providing all the resources you need. So stick with us. Um, great show plan though. We're going to talk a little bit about happiness, what that means. Also looking at our relationship to alcohol. And of course, talking about some uh, pre-election self-care and really planning for post-election self-care. However, I will be talking more about that on Wednesday, you know, day after the election. Uh, will not be on the air tomorrow night. Sheer and Ryan will be doing more of the political coverage. I kind of stay out of that stuff, but uh, sending lots of love and care and just know that, you know, I'm on, I'm on the same side most of you are tomorrow. Uh, all right, let's talk about some stuff in the news. An Olympic gymnast, um, Donnell, uh, came out, discusses how difficult it is to come out in the world. More importantly, though, he was talking about, and this is, I don't know the Olympiads. I don't know athletes, but... Um, Last now, last name is Leba, and he's a three-time Olympic medalist. And he was basically saying, you know, part of the problem is he doesn't really even understand what his sexual identity is. And I think the issue is that we think we need to understand. And as we talked about before, for many people, their sexuality is very open-ended and fluid. Mine is, I've talked about that as well, that it's constantly changing and surprising me. And that sexual identity is more than just gender choice. And it's not something that you just land on and you say, ah, now I know all understood and I move on with my life. No, we always have the capacity of learning new parts about our sexuality, things that turn us on, things that turn us off. Again, it's far bigger than just gender choice and also stumble upon new things that sound good to us or having just a list of things we never really engaged and we want to try a way to. And that's where healthy relationships come in, where you're 
with a partner that's open to you exploring who you are. So I just want to say to him and others listening, you don't need to know. You don't need to identify a label. I don't, I don't use labels for myself. You know, within mental health, labels tend to have expectations and limits. Labels do help people have an understanding of themselves, but unfortunately it makes us think that it's finite. Right? We get a label and we're like, ah, it ends there, but it doesn't. And that's my issue is if we label, we think it stops. Be open, be curious, move forward with continual curiosity about who you are in terms of your sexuality, but even just in terms of your mental health, right? Where one year it might be more of a, a depressiveness and you see yourself as a depressive, but maybe the year after it's rooted in a lot of joy, love, and higher levels of energy and participation in the world and, 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 the, and the things that are meaningful around you. So always stay curious as to who you'll be next. Right? We don't have much of a fixed self. There's not really a lot of a core self that's always carried forward. And when you think there is, it's often because you're just kind of really abiding by that. But try to have more curiosity about who you are and who you will continue to be. It changes. Also, Supreme Court fear sparks same-sex, same-sex couples rushing to the altar. Now, it's heartbreaking. I'm working with a lot of individuals in my clinical practice that are worried about losing their health care trans individuals, people that are gay, that are rushing to get married because they're afraid that that basic human right will be taken away. All these things are heartbreaking and we don't really know. We have you know, that nasty, nasty woman appointed, um, Amy, God bless her, ugh. And uh, we're not sure it's gonna come out of the election. So fingers crossed that you know, fascism will not win and uh, we'll do what we have to do to fight back. And uh, we're going to get loud. We're not going to stay quiet. We're not going to you know, be polite and quiet while we're getting oppressed by patriarchy and fascism um, and more Trump administration. So you know, we always have ways of kind of taking care of ourselves to the best we can. But we're all kind of in it together. But a lot of anxiety, you know. Also, people that are kind of seeing themselves as moving more towards some OCD you know, they never really felt obsessive or compulsive about cleanliness or socialization or touch. And that's something that's becoming more familiar with them. Just know if you're one of those people that as the world opens back up at some point, you will start to develop more comfort, seeing others, being around others, touching and being touched, and that those things will kind of shift and change. Anything that's been created by COVID and the pandemic has the possibility of being left behind as well. We worked our way in, we can also work our way out. You know, so don't don't panic about anything that's arising out of it, which is also part of why I'm telling people to hold hold all that's coming up right now very, very lightly. It's not necessarily who you are now. It's who you are right now, right? Not necessarily in moving forward. Excuse me. So question of the night, as always, is up on our Loveline AG page. Still some time to weigh in on that. And then we'll be doing some DMs. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. And now we're talking about this very popular topic, topic that I think is, gosh, among the more less understood, very problematized concept, it's happiness. And whenever I hear discussions of happiness, it's always fascinating because as someone who's trained, you know, deeply in mental health, which very much has components of this exploration of what, what makes a life most meaningful, what makes one feel best when out in the world, they tend to use the word happiness. Now, we want to remember that that's a beautiful goal. So it's not to knock happiness. And just like we talk about how this idea that we always need to be happy or positive is very toxic, we call it toxic positivity. The idea that you should always try to be happy, always stay positive, always look for the bright side. It's not real, it's not honest. And what it really does is shuts us down. Because as we've talked about before, mental health is about feeling a full range of human emotions, feeling all of them, those that we call good, those that we call bad, being able to move through the day and the week, feeling it, but also being able to drop deeply into it. We don't, there's no such thing as bad emotions, right? 
right? But we think certain ones are, and then we want to get rid of them immediately. And we think that we should always be happy. Even those that know it's not a realistic goal to always be happy because life is complex. Life will throw some things at you. It's not a matter of just perspective. I really don't like when people say it's just about perspective. No, actual... (laughs) Actual bad things happen in the world. Things that make our lives feel bad happen. Sadness, stress, anxiety, those are real emotions. And the idea that it's just perspective means that those emotions should be moved away from or that those emotions aren't legitimate, and they are. They are. Real things happen to people. Racism's real, homophobia is real, um, sexism is is real, and that's not just a matter of perspective. And anger is an important emotion. Anger's healthy. Anger tells us that we didn't set a boundary. Anger is a reminder that we need to set a boundary. Anger directs us towards us needing to make a change, removing someone or something, right? So anger is a very motivating force. Anger is also what drives activism. Anger is what drives change. It's okay to be angry. We have to stop, again, with this tone-policing idea that we always need to be operating at a certain level because sometimes it's okay to be angry. Now, the whole reason why I bring this up is because we try to seek happiness. And the problem is, is that happiness can't be a direct goal. Why? Well, because it's temporary, right? And the things that we often use to seek happiness are very fragile and temporary. Things like consumerism. We think that we can buy things to make us happy. We think that we can work on our gym body to make us happy. We think we can work on our beauty, status, fame, all these different things. But what that really is, is part of your ego. Those things actually support and build up your ego. And they're very fragile. When we tie our worth or our happiness to something that isn't necessarily sustainable, right? We run a big risk. And if you tie your happiness to what you own, you're always shopping. If you tie your happiness to your beauty or your gym body, then you're always struggling to make sure you maintain that with a sense of panic and urgency because, well, your happiness and worth is tied to it. So we get to choose our gods, as they say. One of my favorite theorists always says that. He says, choose your gods wisely. Is your God the God of beauty and how I look? Is the God that you worship one of money and status? Be very careful because if you lose those things, what do you have left? Now we know that happiness is actually an indirect goal and that it's best found when we're focusing on going after what gives us meaning and value. If you're centering what gives me meaning and value in my life, the byproduct of that will be happiness. So again, we find happiness by focusing our lives, our time and our energy as best we can on what gives us meaning and value, which for many isn't their jobs. And you find it outside of that, that's okay. But that's how we get to happiness, indirectly, right? So that's the thing is you have to ask yourself, if you're not, if you're not feeling really happy or content in your life, what am I prioritizing? Do I need to change the priorities of my life? Do I need to change what I put my time, energy, and tension towards? You might need to reorient away from ego-based things, which is material, things you can hold. But happiness, again, comes from meaning and value, which is never rooted in anything material or objectified. It's always experience. It's always what you're doing with yourself, with your time, right? So again, you want to focus on that. It's, it's about purpose, not possessions, right? And we tend to go for the possessions. Got to get the wife. Got to get the kids. Got to get the house. Got to get the right job. Possessions. Those are objects. That's ego. But what about purpose? Is what you're doing through your time and energy and your focus purposeful to you? If not, then you will never find happiness or contentment. It's not possible. And there's a lot of really beautiful psychological theories that are born out of that. Logotherapy from the work of Viktor Frankl, which is stunning. Uh, depth psychology, the Jungian people like Jung and Hillman. And also things like acceptance and commitment therapy, right? Those are really bound in that. Also, even positive psychology really loops in and supports all this work as well. 
um, you know, we want to, we want to really drive our time and energy towards what gives us meaning. And that will, that will never fail you. As I jokingly said on my social media that the gym and the Apple store cannot fulfill you long-term. They're minor shots or bursts and that's okay. It's like a Snickers bar. But if you really want to do the work of really truly having ongoing sustainable happiness or joy, it's really rooted in finding purpose and meaning. And like I said, not all of us, you know, my work, luckily for me, my clinical work, my media work is all rooted in purpose and meaning for me. That's why I do it. And as soon as it loses the purpose and meaning that I have for it, then I leave it. I will leave it because I know that my mental health is about me finding the happiness and contentment of building my life around the things that I value. And that's hard for some people as they look at what they're spending all day long doing a job, a job that isn't rooted in anything they find meaningful or valuable. You cannot then go home and find happiness in just the television or alcohol or possessions. Those are temporary buffers. Those are temporary respirators for happiness, but they give up at some point. And we just know that also through the studies around habituation and habits. It's more, the more we encounter someone or something, there's a decrease in what they can provide for us in terms of happiness and excitement. But ask yourself again, is, is my life rooted in meaning and purpose? And if not, how can I? Because again, sometimes we'll go to the job we go to because we have to pay our bills and get our health care, you know, because we live in a problematically capitalist world. But until that changes, which isn't going to necessarily happen in our lifetime, what are you doing with the time away from that? How can you push back on the boundaries of the things that you don't find meaning and value and to allow more space for those that you do? And sometimes that work comes from just doing general self-care, nothingness, right? Wandering through the world and trying to figure out who you are. It's a lot of what I do uh, in therapy. All right, coming up next, we're going to be talking about alcohol. Uh, I was looking at a really beautiful article written in the first person about someone's journey of moving away from alcohol and working towards moving, you know, centering their life in minimalism. And I thought it was really presented some beautiful ways that uh, we might want to reorient our thinking around alcohol. And this is for people that don't have a problem with alcohol. Just because you're not an addict doesn't mean that alcohol might not still be creating problems in your life. So we'll be talking about that as well as Question of the Night, which is up on our Loveline IG page. So weigh in on that. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Radio.com. And we'll be back in two minutes. All right, we're back. And uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about alcohol. So one of the things I've been wanting everyone to look at is just the way different things play in their life, you know, what kind of impact they have, what kind of role they play, how you feel before, how you feel during, how you feel after. And look, everything in theory has the possibility of being a coping mechanism, right? And uh, in our culture, we love shaming certain things like sex and food. You're not allowed to use sex and food to improve your mood or to cope or to self-soothe. Yes, you can. You are allowed to eat your feelings. Yes, you are allowed to use sex to cope with your feelings. You're allowed to use whatever process makes sense to you if it doesn't have problematic outcomes. Because again, you know, there's a difference between coping and self-care, right? Coping is whatever it is you choose. And self-care tends to be the ones that have an enhancement in your life or at least, you know, a neutral outcome. So a lot of people, when we talk about alcohol, it, wow, it's a trigger. It brings up a lot because it's a lot to look at. And the question for me is never, are you an addict or not? I think the more important question is, is it helpful? What is the impact of alcohol in my life? And that can, that can shift and change. Um, even people that might use the word addict might not meet full criteria and there might be a period of their life where maybe alcohol can make sense, right? We, we never know. There's no diagnostic test that will prove whether or not you're an alcoholic. Why? Well, addiction's a metaphor. It's, it's a social construct. And what it really comes down to is an attempt to help people live lives that make sense to them and feel good to them. And we all can participate in some of that exploration. So whatever the current coping mechanisms you're using are, ask yourself, are they helping? Are they making things better? 
Because if they're making things harder, making things more complex or making things worse, then you make, we might want to take a break. That doesn't mean you can't ever drink again. Uh, it just might mean right now that all that's going on in your life doesn't allow you to have the kind of, you know, relationship to alcohol that you'd want it to. So maybe circle back at another time or maybe don't, you know, alcohol is something that I removed completely from my life last year, started to see that it just wasn't having a beneficial impact. And I was looking at an article and I wanted to share some of this author's thoughts about the positives and benefits that removing alcohol had on her life and kind of unpack it a little bit. And I think what's really important is this author was saying that it wasn't about whether or not she's an alcoholic. She doesn't think in those terms and I don't think in those terms as well. The question for me is always, is said thing, input whatever you want, what kind of impact is that having on you? Is it letting you live the life you wanna live, live by your values and integrity or not, you know? Um, everything and anything has the capacity to have a negative impact on us or a positive one. And sometimes it's not even the substance or the, or the object, it's <clears throat> our comfort with acknowledging it or, um, even just recognizing that's something that has meaning to us. But what, what this author went, went through was this journey of just being more introspective. So I wanted to break some of these down. The first one was sleep. <clears throat> now, it's always interesting, right? Because I've shared with you before where if I had to you know, prescribe one thing that would help everyone across the board increase their mental health, but also their physical health, I would say sleep. It's the one, one foundational thing upon which we can't really achieve or work on all the other things we need to do if that need isn't met. So sleep is imperative. Alcohol has a negative impact on your sleep. It's a depressant, it can knock you out, but you don't necessarily stay asleep or have a high quality sleep. You don't necessarily go into the cycles you need to, and it's not necessarily gonna be as restorative as it could be. So if you're having issues sleeping, it might be your alcohol use. Maybe you're drinking too much, or maybe you're drinking too closely to bed. So I come from a model of harm reduction, because again, Alcohol use is something that everyone needs to look at their relationship to it. And so the question's always, is there a way to reduce the harm? That's always my first entry point. I don't believe that if something's an issue, you need to remove it because that's not doable for everyone. And it's also not everyone's goal. And we're allowed to have joy and pleasure in our lives. So the first question, is there a way we can decrease the harm that this substance is causing, whether it's drugs, whether it's you know alcohol? And uh, for some, that's it. Just drink less or take breaks uh, or don't drink right before bed. Boom, problem solved. But you want to pay attention to that. Also, just the impact it has on us in social situations. Um, for many that are maybe more introverted or more introspective or not really social or outgoing, the use of alcohol becomes a really helpful buffer. But the bigger question I always pose is make sure, though, that you're in spaces and with people that you want to be with. Because I don't want us using alcohol as a way to help us remain present in situations we don't want to be in, situations that aren't good for us, around people that just aren't the kind of people we want to be around. The solution there is about actually just not going to those places or spending time with those people. So if you need alcohol to be somewhere, or if you need alcohol to have a good time, then that's because that person or situation isn't in itself a good time. And that's why you need the alcohol. Maybe do something else. Maybe be, Or maybe do that thing with healthier, more available people, right? We shouldn't have to numb ourselves out on alcohol to be able to participate in certain things. Also, this whole idea of drinking can move some people away from their core values and their integrity. And that's the number one thing I saw. Um, I just wasn't acting like the person I wanted to see myself acting like. I wasn't really participating fully in these experiences. I would reflect back on the concert or the party or the dinner, and I didn't remember all of it. And I didn't necessarily really walk away having 
closely connected or bonded with people. When sober, those connections felt looser or false. It wasn't much I could look back to and kind of take with me. And so it created like a fragility in whatever experience or relationship I was having or relating to in those moments. It just wasn't, it wasn't honest. And that to me, I prefer authenticity always. I'd rather be present somewhere, sloppy, awkward, um, but yet be my full total self than to have a false representation always. Um, and then also finally it, not making it about whether or not you're an alcoholic and not making it about other people's opinions on it. Not everyone will be happy to hear that you've given up alcohol because you're someone they loved drinking with or because you'll now go to bed earlier or you won't be interested in going to bars. I no longer go to bars. It's not an environment that I enjoy. The value systems that are most meaningful to me don't tend to apply there. I go to bed early. I'm more of a morning person. And so it really reoriented my entire social life. But the meaningful, important people were still there and we still do things. We just do different things. You know, so it really puts a lot of your life and what you kind of prioritized in check. Beautiful thing. So maybe take some time away, see what comes of that. Maybe just kind of be more thoughtful about your its use, you know. All right, y'all, coming up next is a DM. So uh, we'll be sliding on in them. And uh, question night, as always, is on our Loveline IG page. So uh, hit that up. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world, and we want you to explore with confidence. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Chris. I was wondering if there are any physical activities or any workouts you recommend for reducing stress. Besides yoga. <laughs> I love that. Let's just exclude yoga. Apparently, it's not your jam. That's okay. It's not really my jam either all the time. Is there anything you do specifically that helps you? Thank you. Uh, first off, you know, are there any physical activities or workouts for reducing stress? Uh, no, because you have to remember, um, oftentimes if we're, if we have a lot of stress, the best thing for us is rest. Uh, often if we add more activity, it's going to further deplete our levels of energy. It's going to further burn us out, uh, could really burn out your nervous system. And so if you're stressed out, you need, you need to one of two things, rest or pleasure. So activities and, and, and what was the, what did you, where did you use activities or any workouts? Yeah. Things that are full of fun and joy and rest. That's what you need. You need to work less and your body doesn't know the difference between workload at the gym, workload at the office, workload, carrying groceries. It will just feel more, more depletion and more activity. If you're already stressed or burnt out, it's not going to be restorative. You need to do the opposite nap, sleep, rest. <laughs> that's what you need. There's nothing that we, th there's nothing that involves more exertion that's going to reduce stress. So you need to rest. Number one, number two, focus on doing some things that bring you joy and pleasure. Sit there and read, you know, go window shopping, bake a cake and then eat it. <laughs> you know, we don't need more work on top of our heavy workload already. Everyone needs to work less. And again, like I said, your brain and your body and your nervous system, they don't separate out. This is this, this is that. It just sees it as more of a workload on their shoulders. Um, now, having said that, the only caveat, the only caveat, caveat, excuse me, I will add to that is that if you're someone who has a lot of excess energy in your body and it's not stress, but it's excess energy, then yes, more activity will help discharge and dispel that. But you have to know the distinction between excess energy and stress, stress, rest, and more joy and pleasure. 
If you have excess energy, then you go find activities. And that's why I say to some people, yoga can be for some restorative or for others, it's just more depletion and activity when they're already overloaded. And that's why it's not always good to just be working out on top of that. But number one, you probably need to work less. You know, I, what, what frustrates me with meditation and yoga and eating better is that it sometimes allows what's causing the stress to maintain itself. And so my first question is always, can you reduce the stressor? <laughs> so as to not need things to help deal with the stress. Deal with the stress directly, not indirectly, right? Yoga doesn't remove stress. Yoga will maybe make you better able to manage. It will maybe in the moment distract or alleviate, but those stressors remain and you go back to those environments. And so it becomes a larger mental health issue. So um, please try to remove some of the stressors. That's what a lot of work in therapy actually is. Not coping, although sometimes it is if you can't reduce the stressors, but it's also working on reducing that which is causing that problem, that which is causing you to need to find ways to deal with stress. That's why companies that bring in you know, yoga, or they put a gym in, or they put meditation, it's like, yeah, that's cool and all, but why don't you also just let people work four days a week, less hours, pay them better. Like that actually is what reduces stress best. So, you know, there that is. All right, y'all question of the night as always is up on our Loveline IG page. So later in the show, we'll be doing that as well as talking about bum, ba, da, bum self-care around the time of election because y'all, we are in the home stretch. So, um, hope you're all preparing, getting ready for, you know, finding out the fate of our future. Fingers crossed. Not sure how to feel right now, you know, but we're all in it together. So um, we're going to do our best. We're going to do our best. We're going to do our best. Also, uh, DMs later in the show and Loveline. You can go back and check out old episodes at wearechannelq.com. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Question of the night, as always, is up on our Loveline IG page. You ever, you know, red flags, right? We all know that whole thing. <laughs> look out for red flags, look out for red flags. Which, by the way, <laughs> if you really pay a lot of attention, you can find out so much early on. I think due to uh, chemistry and attraction, we tend to ignore those feelings of discomfort or those feelings of disconnection or those realizations that, man, we don't really have as much in common as I would have hoped or would have liked, but God, they're so attractive. Hangs us up, you know? But green lights, talked about this a long time ago a little bit. What are the green lights? How do we know if there's green lights? And that's a funny thing to ask people. If you said to someone, what are, you know, general relational red flags, they could probably give you some ideas. But if you said, what are the green lights? What are the things that say to you, yeah, this person's ready. Talked about this last week on the show, relational readiness, really saying, hey, just because I'm single doesn't mean I'm ready for a relationship. Doesn't mean I'll be good for someone because that's what relational readiness is about. Are you gonna be good for someone? Or do you think you're gonna make their life harder and more complex? Do you have a lot of unresolved things? Think back to who you were in your prior relationships. Is there a lot of bad behavior on your part? You can't blame your partner. You know what I mean? It's co-created stuff. And it's really good to look back and say, well, what might I be bringing in? What can I work on not doing again? It's really powerful stuff all the time. I mean, because remember, relationships are a mirror being held up, showing us where our work is. Triggers, they're ours. They show us where our work is. Conflict also are a powerful sign and reminder of where we have some more work and healing to do. So take all of that seriously. But what are some of the green lights? Well, let me tell you the first one. And this is something you don't find out until down the road. But if you're in a relationship with someone who's willing to have difficult conversations and talk about being better and doing the work, bam, that's huge. Because you really need someone who's open. We call it mutuality. Mutuality. 
where you both feel like you have an equal amount of power in the relationship, right? Equality, that's eh, never going to happen. There's always going to be someone who likes it a little neater or tidier. Let them focus that on cleaning. Someone else who's more interested in, you know, more diversity and food and flavor. Great. Let them cook. It's not always going to be 50-50, but I worry more about mutuality. Does everyone feel empowered enough in the relationship? Because it's about power. That's what I care about, not equality. Does everyone have the same amount of power? Do they feel like they can equally influence each other? Do they feel like their concerns and their needs will get met? That's what you want to think about. But we get hung up on this equality thing. It'll never be that way. And I don't mean that in terms of gender equality. I'm just talking about in relationship, there will always be higher desiring and lower desiring, people with better abilities and lesser abilities. Let, let certain people do certain things. But again, you want to make sure that mutuality and that you find out from the beginning. Do they take your opinion into consideration? Do they put themselves out in order to center you and your needs? Um, do they let themselves sometimes get let down and disappointed? Whatever it is, we always want to be looking at, do they afford me the amount of power that they afford themselves? That's the first one. And also trust. A lot of the questions I answer, I assume that the trust is there because if not, go right to that. If you don't trust them or, you don't tr or they don't trust you, you don't have a relationship yet. I really believe a relationship only exists within trust. You might still be relating to them. You might still have a label like husband, wife, boyfriend, or girlfriend. But if you don't trust, then you're not in a relationship. Why? Because you're not going to be able to be fully present. You're not going to be able to show up fully as yourself. And so trust has always got to be the first thing you work on. And sometimes we have to say, is our partner worthy of being trusted? And if they are, well, then it's your work. You have to work on trusting them. And it's not their job to constantly do things to make you feel like you can trust them. That's work you have to do. Because what happens then is sometimes we expect our partner to never do things that upset us or make us anxious, and they will and they can, and that's okay. Again, it's okay to do things that makes your partner a little anxious or disappointed as long as it's done in service of something that's within your integrity, right? Where sometimes you'll have to say, you know, and this was really powerful for me. I, I was uh, engaged for a couple years, and uh, I'm plant-based and vegan, and I won't put my money towards animal products. And so, for instance, I had to say things like, I'm cool going and doing the grocery shopping, but I'm not comfortable purchasing animal products. So I'll buy everything that's outside of that, but if you want meat or dairy, that's something you have to go do. I just don't participate in that. Um, that's within my integrity, my spirituality, my feminism and all that. And so that's a non-negotiable. And if that's let someone down because it makes things more complicated, I'm okay with that. And they have to be okay with that. You know what I mean? It's okay to let people down. That's a real bummer. Um, I've also said I only eat at vegan restaurants, you know, and so that's got to be something that's, you know, willing to be accommodated, right? So we don't have to be perfect because our goal in relationships aren't to be liked. They're to be known and to co-create something with a with this person, someone to be a companion on your journey. But we don't have to be twins. We don't have to have the same opinions on everything. We have to have the same levels of integrity, right? We talked about ethical compatibility. You want to be in a relationship with someone whose ethics mimic yours. Otherwise, you'll have a lot of issues, especially if you're, you know, feminist or social justice or really focusing on mental health. You'll want to make sure that they have an ethic of care and compassion and all the other meaningful things. But that trust is the first one. I mean, it's a non-starter if it's not there. So always just start with that. If they're worthy of trust, practice letting go and trusting them. And if they're not, get out, get out. Someone's not worthy of trust. Someone can't be trusted. Bam, time to go, period. Because if they come to you saying, I want to work on that, well, then you can trust them. If, they'll, if they're willing to acknowledge where the work is, that's when trust is in place. Because again, it's not about them being perfect without flaw, but do we trust, right? So always start with that one. And then the following one kind of ties into that. It's about safety. Do I feel safe with them? And I don't mean physical safety. It's emotionally safe. Do I feel like they'll honor and care when I'm wounded? Because remember, it's not always about intention. It's about impact as well. Whether or not you intended to hurt someone, if you do, you take responsibility and accountability for that. And that's where safety is built. 
that they'll do the transformative repair, whatever's needed in order to do that. And then finally, boundaries. Uh, boundaries are something that are best assessed once a boundary has been set because everyone might have different boundaries around what they think is acceptable. And that kind of more falls under like ethical compatibility. But if you set a boundary, what they do in relationship to that boundary lets you know if they have good boundaries, because part of having good boundaries is how you interact with others. But you have to set one first to be able to assess that. You can't assume they have the same ones you have because I know mine are very different than a lot of people's, right? So those are some of the emotional you know, red flags we wanna pay attention to in a relationship. We'll constantly be circling back and talking about it. It's a really important topic. But coming up next, we're gonna talk about emotional self-care in relationship to the election. Tons of that we're gonna be talking about. Listen to Love Live with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, I wanted to reflect back on something that came up last week. Um, last week's one of the shows, one of the DMs was someone essentially reaching out asking for permission. They wanted me to essentially support them and advocate for them, give them permission to pass on going to someone's baby shower. And it really made me realize that we have to talk more about boundaries and emotional self-care, right? Because the physical self-care, a lot of people understand. But when we talk about what that would look like in terms of psychology or emotionality, like what is emotional or psychological self-care look like? It winds up being about boundaries and limits. And those are really hard for us to set because we have these things in our culture that we think come before all else. And as, as I was saying is like someone's, you know, if it's your birthday, that is your priority. If it's your wedding, that is your priority. If you are having a child, that is your priority. Now, I don't mean that those that love us and participate in our lives, that it's not important to them. But just because something's a priority to you doesn't mean that that's, that, that should be or somehow becomes more meaningful than what might be going on for someone else, right? And the whole question came up where the person said, Listen, you know, right now we're in the pandemic, so I don't feel safe going to an event that has 30 people. So that's number one. I feel pressure to attend something that doesn't feel safe to me, the, the, the baby shower. Number two, they then want me to also spend money I don't have to spend and spend $150 on a COVID test, which makes sense, but I can't afford that. So now they're wanting me to come to an event that feels unsafe and then spend money I don't have in order to attend this thing that I don't even want to go to that they're making me go to. And it just gets so complex. And I was saying in my answer that we're in a time where people are having um, difficulty defending them, protecting their health. So I want to just start by saying, you don't have to go anywhere that doesn't feel safe. And it is okay to disappoint or let other people down. You don't have to go to a work event. You don't have to go to a birthday party. You don't have to go to a wedding. You don't have to go to a holiday event. You don't have to go to a bridal shower or baby shower if it feels unsafe to you, which by the way, it should to everyone. We're in a pandemic. We shouldn't be going to these things. These things should be rescheduled or canceled. Now is not the time to try to find a way to make those things happen. And people are doing it anyway, and it's dangerous because masks aren't 100%. And at a lot of these events, people aren't wearing them or they're touching the same surfaces or each other. So please say no if there's a group getting together to do something, period. You shouldn't have to defend you supporting your health. I turn down all social events right now. I'm a part of the public health. I, that would be inappropriate for me to be going against what I'm advising, but I'm really serious when I say it's not safe and I'm seeing people do all these things anyway. Number two, you shouldn't have to defend your financial situation. If someone's wanting you to spend money on something, you have a right to say no, which by the way, heads up, if you want people to do that, you should be paying for that. I do believe that if you invite someone to certain events like this that require money, cover it. You don't have a right to expect everyone to have that finance. Look, I'll tell you a story. When I first moved to LA, this was 17 years ago. It was, it was very expensive to get here. <clears throat> I was struggling financially. And I remember going to a dinner party and they had a fixed menu and it was gonna be $75 a head at this dinner party. 
So my mere presence was already going to be $75. I didn't have $75 to spend on that meal. Not to mention that the menu had nothing for me because I was vegan, still am. But the expectation that, I, that we all are in the same financial situation can afford that's problematic. I, I think that that is an issue. I pay for the entire dinner when I have a birthday dinner. I invite everyone to my birthday dinner and I cover it because I think it's a really wrong expectation to assume that they all can handle that or want to. You don't know what their finances are. So I said to the individual last week who wrote the DM, you don't need to go. It's okay to let them down or disappoint them in service of your public health because it's an event. And finances, that's, you know, come on, we're, we're on the whole boat with that stressor. So we want to definitely be very thoughtful. So my whole point was just really looking at the fact that, you know, when we talk about self-care in terms of emotionality or psychology, right, it's about boundaries and limits. And this was coming up for me as well. You know, I'm, I'm thankful and blessed that my work is out there. And so it means a lot of people reach out with a lot of different offers and requests and just real quick, I have a question and I've had to set boundaries around that. You know, I spend my entire week doing clinical practice and the radio show. I'm exhausted after that point. I I don't have the time or energy to just real quick answer a question, which is never just a real quick question. So I've started having to ignore set limits or say, yeah, if it's quick. Uh, because that's my job that, that, that mental and emotional energy and focus goes to my work week. And on the weekends, I want to participate as a non-clinical person engaging in all the other areas and identities that are my life. Right. And so that's a limit that disappoints people, but we have to be allowed to do that. We have to be allowed to have a moment where the workday is completely done. Even if we have more work to do, turning off your computer at the end of the workday and just being unavailable after seven or 8 PM is a needed and healthy emotional boundary. Um, I do that like done. You know what I mean? So that's, that's the first part, you know, again, also looking at the way people have access to us, you don't have to be endlessly available. This meme went around and it upset some people, but I thought it was beautiful where you say, Hey, I wanted to see if you had the time or the energy to, to get on the phone or to have this important conversation. And if not, I understand if you reach out to someone, call out that they might be busy. Don't assume that everyone has the availability you need. We never know what's going on in their life and we really struggle to think outside of ourselves, but just because you need something or you're planning something doesn't mean that they don't have other things going on that day or something more important, you know? And so yeah, some people will have to miss our birthday party because maybe they had something else that was a priority to them that day and your priority isn't more meaningful than theirs, right? But we have to ask people, do you have the time or energy for this right now? Because people are burnt out, they're exhausted. I know I am. Like I can't take on any more. I can't be any more available than I already am. And I'm having to set limits and disappoint people that want more than I'm available for able to give. And I've had to say to some people, listen, unfortunately, I'm not able to really work you through, walk you through that right now. Please reach out to another supportive friend. Um, You know, I hit up in a few days and I have the bandwidth. It's really hard to say, but we have to be able to do that, right? We don't have to just make ourselves completely available at all times to anything. We're allowed to set those boundaries. So, and that's also what's coming up around the election right, is we get to decide what conversations we're engaging in based on where things go and the, the anxiety is spiking. And so that's kind of how we deal with the self-care around this election is the emotional, psychological. You don't have to have conversations with people that are racist or homophobic. You don't have to watch the news and have minute by minute updates. I've taken a break from the news completely. I have no idea what's going on and I won't until the election. I don't need to know what the numbers are. I don't need to know what's going on. I voted, I've done my part. And I've reached out to friends, make sure they are. And now we get to pause and step away. That's the self-care right now. Step away until election night. 
which is when we're forced to kind of re-encounter it again, you know? All right, y'all, coming up next is a question of the night and then some DMs, so still some time to weigh in on that. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, it's time for question of the night. All right, so election stuff, y'all. According to The Hill, two in three Americans say that this election is a significant source of stress. That's two in three. 76% high number of Democrats say they're more stressed than 2016. Yeah, that's right. We have human rights on the line. 67% of Republicans say they're more stressed than 2016. God bless y'all. And 64% of independents say they're more stressed than in 2016. So the, you know, it's again, the bulk, the bulk of people are uh, absolutely feeling increased stress. (laughs) I mean, it's unparalleled, right? Like, has there ever been a time in our lifetime, not in mine, where an election had so much weight on it? You know, it's, it's, it's truly something. It's truly, truly something. So anyway, we're all in that. 77% of adults said that the future of the nation was a source of stress, which was up from 66% last year. And I think that's because we are seeing what's really at stake, right? It's clearer than it's ever been. The Black Lives Matter movement was just so needed and so beautiful and so powerful to remind some people that Black Lives Mattered, heartbreaking that that even ever needs to be said, continues to need to be reminded to some people. Um, and so, yeah, 77, almost 80% of adults said the future of the nation is a source of stress. It needs to be. Amy, who's just voted in, she wants to roll back gay rights. She wants to be part of taking away, you know, abortion uh, as, as part of healthcare, which it's very much a part of healthcare, mental health care. It is, it is a healthcare issue. It's a, it's a human right. Um, so yeah, gays are worried about the ability to still continue to get married. We still have states that allow conversion therapy. Uh, the future of the nation should be a stressor. We, you know, Donald Trump is a, is a racist and a bigot and he's our, our, the leader of the country. It's really made a lot of people afraid of nationalism. I've never in my life heard so many people so, uh, threatened when they see an American flag because to them it represents Trump's America. I'm the same way. I've really lost, I'm embarrassed to be an American. I've really lost faith in being a part of this country because of who we elected and all the damage that this person's done. And so it's very understandable. Uh, 71% of adults said that this is the lowest point in our nation's history that I can remember. Uh, And that's compared to only a half, 50% who said that in 2019. But I agree, 71%, lowest point in our nation's history, I agree. It's so embarrassing. Uh, I'm in a relationship with someone in Canada and I'm constantly shaking my head going, I don't even know how to explain to you living in one of the best countries in the world, Canada, which I love, uh, our issues with uh, automatic weapons and rifles and our gun laws. Those are really ridiculous, right? The fact that, you know, like I'm saying, people's human rights are actually being debated and on the line. They're literally Canada's looking down at us. You know, we're the armpit of North America to them. Like, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I literally don't know how to explain this to you. You know what I mean? Like the values that arise out of what's going on right now are really disheartening. So uh, 87% of students, 87, so about 90% of students said that this election was more stressful than any exam they could take. Again, rooted in whether or not individuals will have their rights. That's what that stress is mostly driven by, fear of violence, fear of having their rights taken away. 
It's horrifying. According to the Harris, 46% of adults said that they will be eating junk food the night of the election to cope with the stress. Me too, babes. I'll be eating my feelings. Eat your feelings. Get that food ready. Whatever you can use to take the sharp edges down or distract or check out for a few minutes or put a smile on your face is what we're going to be doing. Election night's going to be a funky night. 42% said they'll be ordering pizza and staying in. God bless it. I'm working all night. Um, I'm, I'm there for my clients that have scheduled those special sessions to try to really process what's going on. Same thing on Wednesday. Um, but for those that are able to just check out and zone out, yo, props. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some new cocktails named, you know. Uh, 49% of people, almost half, said that they'd be drinking. Very understandable at a time like this, that we're turning to whatever we can. That'll decrease our anxiety and make us better able to really be present to what's happening. It's really horrifying to some people. You know, people wondering if, again, they'll have their health care, the ability to to marry, uh, they're just their human rights valued. Uh, 26%, here's where I love the breakdown. So what is it that they'll be drinking this 49% you ask? Well, I've got the answer for you. 26 said they're going to the beer, which I've never been a beer person. I just don't get it. I just don't. Uh, 23% said wine. That was my jam. I was a white wine drinker. I don't drink anymore. But that was, that was the jam. 15 are going for liquor. Kind of surprised by that. I thought more people would be like, it's going to be a night of shots, going for the liquor, pulling out the top shelf. <laughs> I've earned it. Um, 46%, almost half overall, said that they're going to watch the election live. Yes. While 53 said they won't be able to take the stress of watching it live. Yo, whatever you need to do. Again, unprecedented times. <laughs> uh, I'm really curious to see what kind of response we'll get, though, as the numbers roll in uh, on Wednesday morning. It's going to be a really rough time for people Tuesday and then into Wednesday. So again, prepare ahead of time, really uh, have what you need to have, have access to the people you need to have access to. And if you need the day off, take the day off, you know, employers give people that time. If they call in, that's a mental health issue. I, I want people to be able to say election stress and for all employers to be like, I get it. Take care of yourself, please. We're, this is a big deal. All right, y'all coming up next DMs. We'll be back in two minutes with the two minute promise. You're listening to love line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends, Mature the Condoms, because it's a big old sex world, and we want you to explore with confidence. Uh, here's our question. Hi, Dr. Chris. My name is Kelsey. I've been on and off with this guy for about six years. We've gone through everything together. He cheated on me. I cheated on him. We've traveled together. He was my rock when my brother passed away. Literally everything is with him. But... It's been six years. We're too rocky to even think about the next step, but I keep wondering, can you go through everything with someone and then not end up with them? Like there's no way I couldn't have them in my life, but maybe romantically we just aren't meant to be. How can you know? It's a really beautiful question. Um, you know, not all relationships are meant to go on long-term or forever. And that doesn't mean that it's a failure because again, the success of a relationship is about how healthy it was, the value of the time we spent together, not its length of time that it exists. Not every relationship is able to go on forever. No matter how attracted to someone we are, no matter how much we love them, sometimes we grow or change and move into different directions. We can't always expect to be progressing forward at the same time in the same ways. Um, we even see that in things like sobriety. Uh, sobriety has a high rate of divorce. People get sober and they no longer are willing to be in a toxic relationship or 
you know, the partner doesn't relate or really have compatibility anymore as the new individual gets sober and they start to do more sober things and their life changes. You know, again, uh, that happens with education. People get a new career or they move. That happened to me also. I was in a long-term serious relationship on the East Coast. And when we moved to the West Coast together, it didn't translate, it didn't work anymore. Our lives here were very different. And I was glad that we were together and that we both came here together, but we weren't meant to progress in a romantic way. Of course, we remain friends because it's important to me to leave lovingly and all of my exes are friends of mine and they're in my life and I love them deeply and um, my life expands every time I enter a new romantic relationship. It's another person being brought in that gets to stay. You know, you have to run it like an adult though to be able to do that. So it's possibly... It's possible that you guys have hung in there because you've been through a lot, but you get to have each other in your lives still. Just because you decide maybe that you're not going to be romantic partners, they now get to just maybe be a best friend. And social relationships have far more, long, far more longevity than romantic ones. Romantic ones, the romance ends more than the friendships. I mean, think about it. Most of us keep our friends, right? Uh, romantic partners, we've had many. And so, um, yes, you could end up being in a romantic relationship in a committed long-term way with someone else, but this person should and gets to remain in your life just as a friend. And so that's a win-win. And so don't feel bad about maybe acknowledging that it's not able to progress anymore romantically. Now, I'm not able to get a read as to why that can happen, so I'm unclear as to what makes you think that. Um, you cheated on him, he cheated on you. Okay, <laughs> let's not do that anymore or let's not take that into our new relationship. But um, yeah, you, you do get to have them in your life. So that's the one point I really wanna make in this is that just because you're not gonna be romantic partners doesn't mean they don't get to be a friend, a best friend or a casual friend or whatever. So yes, keep them in your life. Still do tons of things with him. Still be make him one of the first people you call when something's going on that's rough. Still support each other. I think that's really beautiful. You know, sometimes a romantic relationship is the precursor to a friendship. And I love that. So that's awesome. Um, how can you know? You can't. That's the difficult part about all of this. But um, don't don't stay out of anxiety. Don't stay out of you know concern that you lose them otherwise. Um, if if the love isn't there in the way that it needs to be, then it's time to part, and that's okay. You know. Again, it's not a sign of failure. Um, but have a have an open conversation about it. I think every relationship should. Have a moment where they sit down and say, what's it been like to be together? Should we progress forward? So ask him his opinion. He might have a really reasonable answer that says, "Let yep, time for friendship. Or maybe you'll have a really great reasonable answer that says we need to maybe progress in a different way. So there you go, y'all. That's also our show. Our question of the night for tomorrow is up. So uh, weigh in on that. And uh, tomorrow... The show, Loveline, is going to be on a hiatus for the day. Uh, Shira and Ryan will be doing their show, tracking the election. So definitely tune in to Channel Q Live to check that out. But uh, Loveline will be back on Wednesday. So definitely join us for that. And we'll be talking about post-sex anxiety, what to do when you're in a relationship and you have different levels of desire. And, uh, you know, just checking in on uh, election. So uh, join us. And as always, old school episodes of Loveline are podcasted over at We Are Channel Q. And also, I hope you are checking out my live stream show, I'm Listening Live. That's every Thursday on all the radio.com handles, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And also, check out those past episodes. It's me and celebrities and experts talking about mental health, their art, self-care, and what's going on with COVID. Good stuff. But as always, y'all, thanks for hanging out with me. Take care of yourselves tomorrow. The election is going to be a really tense day for all of us. So go easy on yourself. Go easy on others. Lots of rest and self-care. Get some of those favorite junk foods ready because we're going to eat our feelings. We're going to ground ourselves however we can. We're going to feel our feels. We're either going to celebrate or we're going to cry. But uh, we're all in this together. So y'all have a beautiful night and see you on Wednesday.